Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 225, Matters Great and Personal. Just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, this month's featured podcast is a bit of a change from our normal thing. It's called Tiny Vampires. Tiny Vampires is a podcast about disease, science and blood-sucking insects. Every episode is driven by a listener's question and the scientific investigation that answers that question. It's available in all the usual places and at tinyvampires.com. So, if bloodsucking and science are your things, check it out. Now then, everyone, over the last couple of weeks, we've decorated the scenery on the set behind our play with the story of the late medieval church and the astounding story of Luther and the church's bungled attempts to crush his message. So, Now we're going to dive into some of the most dramatic years of English history, a play with a rich team of players. It's got fanatics like Fisher, Moore, Tyndale, Catherine of Aragon. Ruthless politicians locked in a vicious struggle for power like Wolsey, Cromwell, Norfolk. We begin to hear about some of the characters that will run through the English Reformation like Cranmer, Stephen Gardiner, Reginald Pole. And there are all the old guard you've come to know and to love, the nobility and courtiers gathered around the king. Thomas Boleyn, George Boleyn, Thomas Wyatt, Francis Bryan. And over all of them, there's the fascinating and controversial figure of Anne Boleyn. And while we have all these characters, these years see changes in England which, though certainly unfinished and tentative in many ways by the end of Henry's reign, are as fundamental as any in English history. Seriously, I struggle to name any comments in English history which define England as much as the break with Rome. 
So many consequences flow from it in her identity, sense of nationhood, relationships with other powers of Europe, as well as the religious life of her inhabitants. So look, I don't want to oversell it. But despite the fact that there can be few bits of English history so well trodden, our collective horn, gentle listeners, surely overfloweth. Oh, and by the way, before I move on, just a joke back there about St Catherine of Aragon, though to be fair, victim she might be, but there's an element of a fanatic too, isn't there? Anyway, we shall see as the story unfolds. So here's the plan. I'm going to spend the next three weeks exploring the events of the years between the king's search for a divorce and the end of the Rhone for Anne Boleyn. Then we're going to have a bit of a hoolie around Anne. You might remember that a year ago we had an event with Richard III where we had a couple of votes, there was a chat on Facebook, there was prize, and it was fun, or at least I thought it was so. Therefore, I thought we could do the same with Anne. I think it has to be a little bit more nuanced than with Richard, which was basically a did he, didn't he sort of thing. And I don't think you can quite do that with Anne's situation. But later on in October, we'll have a vote. We'll have some special episodes. There'll be some prizes. There'll be some guest episodes too. More details to come in a couple of weeks' time. Just to set ourselves up then with the history, there are many questions about the events around the break with Rome and the royal supremacy, but here are a few to keep in your mind. I should note, there is emphatically no definitive answer to any of these questions, and you are absolutely free to make up your own minds on them. Because historians have been unable to agree about them for centuries. If you happen to be a Ricardian, then whether you like it or not, pretty much every professional historian of modern times concludes that, sorry, he was guilty of murdering two small defenceless nephews. There is much more disagreement about Henry and Anne. Now, I'm sorry, I realise that what follows is a series of plot spoilers. Really don't know how to get away with that, apart from saying sorry. So, sorry. Number one question, then. So tell me why, then, Henry decided to get divorced from his queen, Catherine of Aragon. Was it, as Catholics of the time would have us believe, just pure and simple lust for Anne, a desire to get his leg over to have a bit of nookie? Or was it, as Henry would have you believe, that he was motivated by a horrified understanding that ah, his marriage was against God's laws and therefore it was cursed? Or was he motivated by his responsibility as a king to deliver his people from the chaos and death of civil war and make sure that there was a son to inherit the throne when he died? Second big question, who was it that drove the whole thing strategically? Some have argued that poor old Henry was driven to it by the Protestant whore Anne Boleyn. I use the words of contemporaries and later Catholic commentators, of course, although contemporaries wouldn't have used the word Protestant. They would have it that she nagged and manipulated the poor lamb until eventually he said, oh, go on then, I'll declare myself head of the church and discard a thousand years of history. Others, though, have seen Henry as the decision-maker, not Anne as the prime mover. However prevaricating he might have been, and even though he had Cromwell there as an implementer. And others yet have seen Cromwell, later on in the process maybe, but sneakily introducing evangelical reform by the back door, while Henry busied himself hunting small animals and women of various sizes. And then there's Anne. How should we view her in all of this? As a proto-feminist hero, or a vindictive, manipulative politician, or simply... A woman of her time. Anyway, so let's get on with it. When we left Henry last time, he was a vigorous and passionate defender of papal supremacy, so much so that he'd won a special badge for his holiday project in defence of the seven sacraments. 
So enthusiastic was he that even Thomas More had suggested he downplay his passion for the Pope and his leadership just a little bit. But the bullheaded Henry had pushed ahead. Bear this in mind when he chucks the Pope out of England. In 1521, when Henry wrote the Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, the main impression you'd have had about his relationship with Catherine would still have been pretty positive. She'd been a good wife to Henry and a good queen in the traditional mould. When I say traditional mould, it's worth repeating what I think you all know, which is that for the selection of a queen, we need to turn to Tina for inspiration and ask, what's love got to do, got to do with it? Or even our own Prince Charles, whatever love is. A queen's job was to bring with her a valuable alliance, international hopefully, to be someone who could do the regal job, but mainly someone who could produce heirs. Let me fill all you female History of England listeners with righteous indignation and all you blokes with guilt by noting that not producing children was considered to be the woman's fault. I'm not talking about anything subconscious or subtle here. It was her fault. There was either something wrong with her or God was making a judgment somewhere about somebody and it's probably not going to be me. Love would be an added bonus in a royal relationship but was not expected and not really necessary because here the king could roll out the old double standards thing and have affairs to cover all the love and sex stuff that he needed. Henry was indeed a pretty traditional sort of bloke, and usually when Catherine got pregnant, he'd go and find himself a mistress like Bessie Blunt or Mary Carey. Despite the fact this is all supposed to be pretty standard, it's worth noting that Catherine shows signs of getting upset by it, but she does her duty. She doesn't go on about it too much. And also, actually, she's thoroughly indulgent in all of Henry's prattling about with his male pals. I'm saying a couple of things here. One is that Henry and Catherine got on pretty well for the first ten years or so of their marriage, and that Catherine was a model wife in the Tudor mould, demure, obedient, careful not to get involved in politics. Secondly, that there is a model of the kind of queen you married, foreign, hopefully royal, vast tracts of diplomatic benefits, and the rule had really only been broken once since the conquest by Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. The monarchy had survived that, but only just. Fine, by the mid-1520s, it's quite clear that Catherine had failed in one key department, and that she was not going to succeed now, namely in the male heir production area. Her last pregnancy had probably been in 1518. She'd lost her looks as far as Henry was concerned. Somewhere around this period, Henry stopped sleeping at all with Catherine, and as far as he was concerned, his marriage with her was at an end for practical, childbearing purposes. Now, you might well say, OK, it's a shame that their relationship has broken down, but you know, that happens a lot, in fact. People fall out of love all the time, though it's a bit tricky when you can't get divorced. But at least they do have an heir in Princess Mary. Well, you might take that attitude with our modern view and knowing what we know, about the reigns of Elizabeth and Mary II, and even the reign of Mary I, to be honest. And knowing that in England, there was no rule against women becoming queen in their own right anyway, nothing legal to stop them as there was in France. But back then, there were plenty of other objections. There were the general views about women being unsuitable to rule, the old chain of being, which had God and fathers right at the tippy top. And then, There'd only been one example of a female ruler for England before, which was Henry I's daughter Matilda, and the anarchy of her reign had been so bad that Christ and his angels had slept. And look, England had just been through the Wars of the Roses. The last thing anybody wanted was a rerun of that. 
So whether you like it or not, Henry was not being unusual or unreasonable in panicking about his lack of a male heir in the context of his day. It's been pointed out that most of the credible Yorkist pretenders to the throne had been eradicated, but such an argument ignores the fact that Henry Tudor had been barely credible himself. You might argue that Henry took his panic way too far. You might say there were other things at play. You might argue that there might have been other ways of solving the problem, or that he should have been soothsayer enough to realise his daughters would make good rulers. But without being a mind reader, it's impossible to assert definitively that Henry was simply motivated by lust or greed or even religious fanaticism. He faced a real issue, and it's entirely possible that he believed it to be so. It's also worth noting that in 1525, Catherine had failed him in another way. As a counter in the diplomatic game, she'd also turned out to be a damp squib. Firstly, because Ferdinand had been as unreliable a father-in-law as you could wish for. And because now, after the Battle of Pavia, when it seemed that the Empire under Catherine's uncle had finally won, would you Adam and Eve it, he'd refused to share the spoils of victory. So in summary, Catherine was jolly vulnerable. There were no male children and no prospect of more. The relationship had gone cold. Her diplomatic advantage turned out to be zip. And in addition, she displayed a personal identification with the Holy Roman Emperor that now irritated Henry. That's not to say that all of Christendom wasn't appalled at what he's about to do. Nonetheless, there is some defence. Meanwhile, Henry was surrounded by good-looking and available women, one of whom was Anne Boleyn, the younger sister of the woman he'd been having an affair with for the last few years. The strong impression we get, then, is of a young woman who is desirable and desired, who is absolutely at home in the atmosphere of court, equipped with all the skills and personal characteristics to win the prizes that her father Thomas would have wanted for her. There's all manner of discussion about what Anne actually looked like, all sorts of debate about the portrait that best represents her. Actually, the most authoritative is a medallion created for her coronation with the legend The Most Happy, which has been reconstructed by one Lucy Churchill and which will be offered up as one of the prizes when we get to the quiz and poll thing. But after all the shouting is done, Anne seems to have been dark, slight and low-breasted, probably with dark black hair down to her waist, with sparkling, captivating eyes. But equally, she was far from the model of maidenhood sought after at the time. I hear the ice cracking all around me as I speak, so without getting into the gender politics of it all, the ideal woman at the time was blonde and fair. Nobody, therefore, comes out and says, Wow! Anne Boleyn was a stunner! And the temptation to do so when she becomes the king's special friend would have been enormous. So, you have to put all the standard stuff to one side and say that whatever it was, Anne Boleyn was the equivalent of Stacey's mum. She had it going on. One description we can dispose of quickly, which is the Catholic trash talk. Nicholas Sanders tells us she had six fingers, a protruding tooth and a wen so large on her neck she had to cover it up with a high collar. All tripe. The only strong possibility is that she had the small show of a sixth fingernail on one hand. Anne attracted attention for many reasons. She was fashionable. The talk was all of the French ways and French fashions. She was also, for want of a better word, gobby. Actually, I'm pretty sure there are many better words, but I like the word gobby for some reason. By gobby, I mean that Anne was able to mix it up with the young lads and lasses of court and play the courtly game of love to perfection, walking the line between behaving as the courtly mistress on one hand and the flirt. As I think we've observed before, women had something of a challenge when it came to sexual politics. Anne 
was good at it. She makes at least a few conquests that we know about. We've already talked about James Butler, the marriage Woolsey was at this very time failing to complete in Ireland. And then there is a young beau called Thomas Wyatt, who is also incidentally no mean poet. For you Shedcast members, we have a special episode from a proper literature lecturer, Steve Cloutier, on the man, his poetry and his relationship with Anne. And that's coming out on the 1st of October. It's a humdinger. You're going to love it. Steve is a lecturer and really good at his topic, as well, of course, of being a fan of the history of England. So must be a good guy then. For the moment, all I'll say is that Wyatt probably tried it on with Anne, possibly perhaps, and his poetry strongly suggests he wasn't the only man in the hunt. But Anne was having none of it. For one thing, Wyatt was married, and unlike her sister, she wasn't content with being mistress. The next guy up was potentially a very good catch, and must have been as good as her dad had hoped when he threw his daughters into the ring that was the court. Henry Percy, heir to the Duke of Northumberland, seems to have fallen in love with her, even though he was actually betrothed to Mary Talbot. I didn't necessarily mean to suggest it was only one way, and may well have been in love with him to boot. Dating the story is really tricky, but it could have been as late as 1525, when Wolsey got involved and split the whole thing up double time, despite the resistance and tears of the young man and fury of Anne. According to Wolsey's biographer of the time, George Cavendish, she vowed revenge on the cardinal and declared to him, if it ever lay in her power, she would work the cardinal as much displeasure. At the height of his powers, Wolsey would have shrugged this off. And in fact, I can sense a certain amount of eye-rolling going on out there with you good people. Come on, I can hear you say, seriously. Are we really going to go through every boyfriend-girlfriend thing of every 20-something at the court of Henry Tudor? If we are, I'd better book that podcast prayer at the old people's home. I'm going to be needing it. Well, look, it's relevant for two reasons. One is that according to Cavendish's story, Anne conceives an implacable hatred of the good cardinal at being denied her wishes and lover, and this will contribute directly to the cardinal's fall in a few years' time. It says something about Anne as well, that she was considered vindictive enough to hold a grudge about such a thing for so many years. But it's also worth asking, why Wolsey nixed the affair? Now, there are some perfectly good explanations available. Percy was already promised to marry Talbot, and Wolsey would disapprove of young men who went against the wishes of their rich and powerful fathers. The other reason is that Wolsey was very probably still working on the Butler-Berlin hookup. But a further theory is that it was Henry, that Henry already had the hots for Anne this early. And note that this affair could be dated anywhere between 1524 and 1526. This is relevant because it affects our view of Anne, and indeed of Henry. If she starts setting her cap at Henry before it's clear that the king's marriage to Catherine is dead, then she can present it, as the Catholics did, in the words of one, as a strong whore who actively tore apart the king's marriage for her own gain. Of course, it has to be said that it's never clear that Anne sets her cap at Henry at all. Rather, it's Henry doing all the cap setting, since almost none of Anne's letters survive. But if you take the view at this stage, Henry had nothing to do with it, that Wolsey had perfectly good reasons to keep the two apart anyway, it's much easier then to present Henry and Anne as much more principled in their actions that follow. As far as the start of Henry's interest in Anne is concerned then, all we have in terms of solid rock 
is the date of his application to the Pope in August 1527, August 1527, that he be able to marry whom he choose if Catherine were out of the way. He asked for a dispensation for, quote, first degree of affinity from forbidden wedlock. Effectively, this dispensation was specifically designed to allow him to marry someone when he'd slept with that someone who had an affinity as close as their sister. The obvious conclusion is that in this case, it means that he'd slept with Mary Boleyn and wanted to be able to marry somebody within one degree of affinity as her, Anne Boleyn, namely. Another theory comes up, again by the Catholics, which says, ah, that means he slept with Anne Boleyn's mother. And in fact, there's even one delightful theory that said Anne Boleyn was both his daughter and his lover. If August 1527 is the date, then, by which we know for certain that Henry is looking for a divorce, how much earlier than that is it that he's given up on his marriage with Catherine? It's impossible to tell from public events because Catherine remains publicly queen for quite a long while, though not always managing to hide her misery. There is another event that might give us a clue. You might remember Bessie Blunt, a previous mistress of Henry's. Well, she had given birth to a boy in 1519, Henry's son, now known as Henry Fitzroy, Henry, son of Henry, as it were. In June 1525, Henry gave all the signs of moving towards recognising him as his legitimate heir. He made him Duke of Richmond, after his father, of course. He gave him precedence over pretty much everyone at court. This caused a ruckus, and make no mistake about it, it got Catherine's royal blood up, and her ladies-in-waiting's loyal support got three of them dismissed from court. But Henry drew back from actually legitimising Henry. It was, after all, a strategy fraught with danger and with later challenge. So it may be as early as just after June 1525 that he starts thinking he needs alternatives to Catherine to deliver him an heir. We also know that at some point, Henry discovered the text from Leviticus 20, which would be so debated over the next few years. If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He shall be without children. And we know that Henry came into the open about this by May 1527, and presumably had been debating it with his religious advisers some time before then. So we're looking, maybe, at a date no later than December 1526 or January 1527. At some point in time, we know that Henry has definitely decided not only that Anne has it going on, but that she needs to have it going on with him. Because we have a rather remarkable 17 love letters from him which have survived. I know! Remarkable. You can see them on the interweb. I'd suggest you go to the fantastic website called The Anne Boleyn Files. Delightfully, they're all undated. And equally delightfully, they're very tricky to put in order. Though whenever you read a history book, there will be a confident assertion of some sequence or other. I'm not going to go through all these letters, and I need to remind you of the thing that we've just said about how difficult they are to date, so I'm going to confine my confident assertions to just two things neither of which will blow you away with the depth of my insight, and will keep the mindless speculation to some other time and a universe far, far away. Firstly, Henry is a man lost. I know he was a married man and really shouldn't have been writing to some young fancy woman. And I know the whole immoral training of the courtier thing was designed to look just like this to get the woman into bed so you could then desert her once you'd had your fun. But whatever Henry does over the next few years there is part of him at least that does it for love. That is nice, in a sense. 
it's also deeply unconventional. Remember that discussion we just had in royal marriages? That's not what a queen is for. Did Anne love Henry? Sadly, that's anybody's guess, though we'll try at some point to have a view. Partly, this is Henry's fault. He does everything he can after Anne's fall to eradicate her memory, so we don't have her replies to his letters, which is a shame. And in fact, Henry's letters only survived because they found their way somehow to the Vatican. Which leads to the second point. Love or not, Anne holds out for marriage, and just as she showed with Wyatt, she will not suffer the status of a mistress. It's reasonably clear that Henry and Anne go through a process from, in the words of Avril, hey, hey, will you be my girlfriend? No? Okay then, I'll make you my one and only mistress, what Francis I would describe as a maîtresse en titre. No? Okay then. And then, at some point, Anne gives in and promises to be his one and only, but only as his wife. There is a critical letter where Henry expresses his delight at a gift that Anne has sent him, a ship with a woman on board. It seems generally accepted that this signifies her agreement. So, when was that then? As I said a moment ago, it's pretty critical to the way you view Henry and Anne. In any circumstance, it could always be the case that Henry's desire for a divorce and his desire specifically for Anne followed different parallel channels and that the divorce is not purely about a man and a woman's lust for each other. But if Anne's agreement comes before May 1527, when Henry announced his concerns about Leviticus, then Henry and Anne are at least open to the accusation levelled by Reginald Pole, Queen Mary's Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury. At your age in life, and with all your experience of the world, you were enslaved by your passion for a girl. But she would not give you your will unless you rejected your wife, whose place she longed to take. And the answer is... Who knows? You pay your money and you take your choice. Henry might have been considering divorce as early as 1522, but 1525 and the incident with Henry Fitzroy looks to be a more credible date. David Starkey reckons he begins to get serious about Anne as early as late 1524. Ives says rather later at 1526. As far as Anne's agreement and the famous gift, Starkey says January 1527 before the divorce inquiries in May 1527. Hives puts it a bit later, summer 1527, after the divorce inquiries in May. There's a bloke called John Matusak, who thinks pretty badly of pretty much everyone, as far as I can see, thoroughly enjoyable writer though he is. G.W. Bernard, who is generally actually much more critical of Anne in this case, concludes that it's more likely that Henry persuades Anne by telling her that he can make her his wife, and therefore concludes a later date. But gentle listener, you will make your mind up based up on your own evaluations. For what it's worth, the more recent historians appear to let the two of them off Reginald Pole's hook and believe that the two thought processes are separate. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One more thing. 
it seems reasonably clear that Henry's first strategy was to get Anne into bed for a bit of rumpy-pumpy, and only when she held out did he change tack. But from this point forward, the traditional story has it that Anne spent her life wiping royal dribble off her dress and refusing to have sex with desperate Henry. This is probably not so. Henry was probably absolutely as keen not to have sex before Anne was queen as Anne was, because to do so would have made any offspring illegitimate. It's impossible to prove, but to me it seems beyond reasonable doubt, if you accept Henry's love for Anne, and you accept they have marriage in mind. So, onwards with the divorce. Literally, I could write a five-year-long podcast on this topic alone. So let's make an agreement, shall we, you and I? Let's not get too wrapped up in it, in the finer detail, the ins and outs of the toings and froings of all the diplomatic shenanigans. OK, but in the process, we must deal with it, of course, and we must deal with what it tells us about the players involved, particularly Catherine and Henry, and also with Cardinal Wolsey. So, first off, that Leviticus thing. The idea that actually Henry's marriage to Catherine was against the laws of God. It should be noted that this was nothing new. The church knew about these texts. They had a view on them, and on the apparently contradictory text in Deuteronomy, which essentially says, fine, go for it. Secondly, some of you will have your hands up right now and be eagerly making the point in your local that Pope Julius II had anyway granted a dispensation. So what was all the fuss about? Henry was as legless as you're planning to be in your local on a Saturday night. Well, although Henry's point was weak-ish, it was not a dead duck. Because Henry's point was that Leviticus was a fundamental law of God as revealed in the Bible. And therefore no Pope could offer a dispensation against it. And so he was away and clear. At which point a cynical leer will come over your face and you'll say, Come on, get real, dude. Are you seriously telling me Henry believed all of this stuff? No way, man. It's just way too convenient. At which point, most historians appear to say, yes, way. Incredible, as it may seem, most buy the idea that Henry was pious to the point of superstition in the good old medieval tradition. He had a Hebraist who had usefully told him that in the original Hebrew, the meaning of Leviticus was no male children. This therefore helpfully dealt with the problem that Mary existed. They say that Henry believed that because miscarriage had followed miscarriage, his wife with Catherine was cursed by God. Now, you must make your own choice about whether or not you feel Henry was being genuine, that he really believed this. Only Henry and his God can ever really be sure. Now, at this point of proceedings, Catherine knew nothing at all about any of this. Henry had confined his doubts only to Wolsey, and Wolsey was not a happy bunny. He was not a happy bunny at all. Cardinal Thomas Wolsey was a good son of the church, and a consummate diplomat and politician. He knew very well what pain this would be. And according to him, anyway, he went down on his knees for hours in front of his lord and master and begged him to reconsider. But Henry's mind was set, and when Henry's mind was set, that was that. And Wolsey's cardinal principle, half half, was to execute the will of his boss. Now, Wolsey's first instinct then was to get this done quickly and quietly before the political nation got to hear about it and before any foreign powers with sharp, pointy knives got to hear about it either. 
And so in May 1527, he convened a really rather remarkable court in England to try Henry himself for having been in an unlawful marriage all these years, you naughty boy, and to then hear the case under Wolsey's legatine powers. And then the idea was that he'd slit the judgment by Pope Clement for a ratification. Just sign there, sir. Thank you, sir. And before you could say sweet freedom, Catherine would no longer be a wife and Princess Mary would be a bastard. But for some reason, Wolsey lost his nerve. The case went so far and then stopped. It seems that Wolsey had decided that he could just not rule on a case like this. And so it would have to go to Rome. Now, popes were good at making up reasons why they should annul royal marriages. They happily accepted that the show must go on. The world is an imperfect place and a reason could always be found somewhere in the annals of the church to justify most things. So really there is some justification in Henry's fury at all the obstacles put in his way. Kings expected things like this to be resolved. Where Henry is really to blame is in his tactics. Wolsey realised that this was to succeed, it had to be done as quietly as possible for as technical a reason as possible. And all his schemes over the next few years involved an element of sneak. His first suggestion was a clever approach that the papal dispensation originally had been insufficient because it didn't deal with the problem of public honesty. So let me explain that. Basically, that original dispensation years back by Julius II had to deal with two things. The degree of affinity between Henry and Catherine, given that Catherine was his brother's widow, the Leviticus thing. But also public honesty, which required the marriage and any objections to it to be widely known and announced. Wolsey reckoned they could claim that the dispensation hadn't covered the question of public honesty. And this meant there'd be no need to have a barney with Catherine about whether Arthur had had his wicked way with her all those years ago. Another idea, later on, when Henry had rejected that one, was that Pope Clement by this stage had been captured by Charles V and locked up. So Wolsey's wizard wheeze was to get all the other cardinals to give him special powers during the period when Pope Clement was banged up so that he, Wolsey, could make the judgment himself with sort of papal powers. Sneaky, you see, these ideas are sneaky. But Henry would have none of it. Henry was a big, bold, bombastic, arrogant sort of bloke. As far as he was concerned, he had been through a divine revelation that his marriage was against the laws of God. And the reason for the annulment of his marriage must be that. Anne's name was to be kept firmly out of it. No one must mention anything about hitting legs over anything outside the tilt chart and the word nookie was right out. I think it's got something to do with his vanity. Henry fancied himself as a theologian and this was his theological discovery and he wanted the glory of it. So, Wolsey tried to get to Rome and collar Clement before Catherine got to find out about it and could make a fuss. But then everything went pear-shaped. A shape, incidentally, to which Wolsey and Henry were to become accustomed over the next few years. The mutinous troops of Charles V had gone potty in Rome and they'd sacked the place, burned it and wrecked it. And in the process of burning and wrecking, they'd captured Clement, and he was a prisoner of Charles V, who was, of course, Catherine's uncle. Oh, rat bottoms. 
Then, while still contemplating rats' bottoms, Henry and Wolsey had another piece of pear, because Catherine found out about it. Now then, Catherine of Aragon. It is pretty difficult to present Catherine as anything other than a victim in all of this. But it is equally difficult, in my view, to paint Catherine as a saint, as she is often painted. Catherine was a player. We've seen her trying to play international politics in her youth under Henry VII. We've seen her identifying very much with Spanish interests rather than English. And throughout this crisis, she puts her own honour at the front. Her own honour is the be-all and end-all, possibly alongside the word of God I'll concede. She will constantly profess to be a loving and obedient wife. And this is tripe, back to Tina Turner again. Catherine would not be put aside. She is a Spanish princess and she will not be put aside, whatever the damage. She uses every tool at her disposal and don't think of her as helpless. Her tool, in this case, is the most powerful man in Europe and the assembled opinion of the Roman Catholic Church, which rather dwarfs the puny resources Henry has at his disposal. She plays to the public galleries, she plays politics at court, she has friends like John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester, who tirelessly supports her and argues for her, all the way to his execution in 1535. At court, if you believe the factional thing, an Aragonese faction will fight her cause, and the imperial ambassador Eustace Chapuis uses every trick and every shred of imperial influence to fight her corner. Now, don't take this as criticism of Catherine. After all, why on earth shouldn't she? She's quite clearly the victim of nasty, self-interested attack by her husband, whom she firmly believes to be her lawful husband. Her daughter Mary is at risk of being removed from the succession. She comes under quite enormous personal pressure and is treated at times with considerable mental cruelty, though never physical, it must be said, whatever she claims. Mental cruelty such as being separated from her daughter and being forced to give her jewellery to her husband's mistress, which is a devilishly nasty piece of work. Catherine fights with courage, determination and some skill. And I say again, why not? But she was given honourable ways out, which would appear to have suited her. But she never takes them, because her self-image would not allow it. So fine, why not, if we admire Anne as a woman who would not accept the strictures of her time? So much the same for Catherine. All I'm saying is that Catholic Catherine must also share responsibility for the break with Rome and the end of a thousand-year-old tradition, and in the end, the triumph of Protestantism in England, which is deeply ironic. Anyway, Catherine now finds out, and messages spread out from her to make sure all her continental allies know all about it, specifically Charles V. Uncle Charles is livid, and from now on until Catherine's death is Henry's implacable diplomatic enemy. Henry finally has the courage to go and tell Catherine face-to-face that their marriage is at an end as far as he's concerned. There's a lot of blubbing and Catherine is clear that she did not have sexual relations with that man, i.e. Arthur, her previous husband, and therefore it wasn't even a legally constituted marriage and so Leviticus doesn't come into play. Catherine will hold to this position to her death. It is too much to say, as does one historian, that it is beyond doubt she didn't have sex with Arthur, but I for one believe her. Pope Clement's capture by the Holy Roman Emperor was in the short term bad news for Wolsey and Henry. And it's frequently written that this was a long-term insurmountable obstacle to Henry, that it's this 
that does for him, the fact that the Pope was in the Emperor's control. But in fact, it's rather the other way round. The antagonism between Pope and Emperor was the only hope Henry had. If Clement and Charles became best buds, then Clement would have no incentive at all to irritate his pal by giving judgment against his aunt. While Clement and Charles were at daggers drawn, Clement needed English friendship and the friendship of the French, which could come with them, and would do his best to accommodate Henry, if at all possible. Nonetheless, in the short term, Wolsey was in a jam that would have baffled Abraham, because Clement was actually captured by Charles V. And it was perfectly clear to him that Henry's theologically purist approach would get nowhere. So, Wolsey targeted diplomacy, with the aim to bring about a hegemony in Europe of their allies, the French, to force the Pope to terms. And it's true that every time the French advanced in the Italian peninsula, the Pope became a little bit more amenable because he might be rescued from Charles V. Or Wolsey would deafen the Pope with dire tales of what would happen in England if Henry did not get what he wanted and hope that somehow the Pope would see sense. And the messages he got to Clement were clear enough that Henry would do something terrible, that the authority of the Pope in England would be destroyed forever. Though whether Clement took any real notice is moot. Certainly, he never really took his eyes off the Italian peninsula and the greater threat that was Charles V, and it never got to the top of the priority list. Throughout 1528, the diplomatic struggles of the Cardinal carried on with increasing frustration on the part of Henry and Anne. Henry's attitude towards Wolsey's efforts wavered between trust and reliance and enormous frustration and doubt. Throughout, he believed that the cardinal's skill was what he needed, but he began to doubt how much Wolsey really wanted it to happen. At one stage, Wolsey was horrified to hear that Henry had sent an envoy direct to the Pope with instructions that were not revealed to Wolsey. He'd gone behind Wolsey's back. This was new territory for the cardinal and drew a stream of desperate pleas and letters. Anne's attitude is more difficult to know and her influence is more difficult to measure since, of course, everything came from or through the king. So if you simply looked at who issued instructions, then, of course, you would believe Anne to be invisible. But the story is certainly more complex than that. We need to talk again about faction. It should be noted that the idea that Henry's court was riven by organised, coherent factions is not altogether a done deal. It's the fashion of the moment. It's highly likely that individuals with similar views did indeed work to influence the king. That was the job of a courtier after all. But as to who aligned with whom, how organised they were, and whether any factions were effective in changing the king's mind, is very moot. But the argument for faction is also powerful. It's certainly clear that there were issues on which multiple people agreed at court, and it seems intuitively likely that these folks should work together, since opposing the king's will directly was simply not acceptable. Groups therefore attempted to influence the king towards their way of thinking. During the struggle for the divorce then, some would see three factions emerging. Firstly, there were Wolsey's supporters. This was in itself unusual. Wolsey at this point had never felt the need for supporters. His absolute dominance had removed the need for faction because he was not influenceable. And despite the efforts of the Minions, he'd managed to dominate the king's confidence to the most extraordinary degree. But now he had a rival. Now there was the rising star of Anne Boleyn, 
and she had a direct route to the king's shell-like. And so here was a second faction. And Anne's rise had created a third faction, that of the Queen Catherine, the Aragonese faction, which would increasingly become associated with a conservative or traditionalist approach to religion. Chucking a whole load of names of you is at most unwise, since many of these names move from faction to faction as the situations change, but I'm going to try a few anyway. Sorry about that. So, the Aragonese faction at this point are led by a courtier called Nicholas Carew. Carew had been one of the king's minions for more than ten years by 1528. He was popular with the king, a good jouster, and one of those minions Wolsey had struggled against for years. He'd been marginalised by the good cardinal in 1519. In 1526, Wolsey again had dismissed him from court. But by 1528, Wolsey's grip was slipping, and to his dismay, in 1528, Carew returned. At Carew's side was a name that used to be popular here in the history of England many years ago, that of Courtney, specifically Henry Courtney. He was the king's cousin, again popular with the king and one of his intimates. In 1525, he was made Marquis of Exeter, which is how we shall refer to him from here on in. With others around them, Carew and Exeter felt a fierce devotion to the ill-used Queen Catherine and to the Princess Mary. Their aim, therefore, was to prevent the divorce at all costs and specifically to bring down the man most likely to deliver that divorce, namely Thomas Wolsey. At Anne's side, meanwhile, were the rest of the Boleyn clan. Her father, Thomas Boleyn, who we shall now call Wiltshire, although in fact he doesn't become Earl of Wiltshire until 1529, and her brother George Boleyn, who we'll now also call Rochford, although he doesn't get to be Rochford until 1529. Rochford's wife, incidentally, is that Jane Parker who shared the pageant with Anne back in 1521. The Boleyn faction was not restricted simply to that family, though. Of particular note was Sir Francis Bryan, the so-called Vicar of Hell, another of those minions and a particularly effective courtier. More than any other, Bryan had the ability to speak the truth to Henry and yet escape his wrath. So, a couple of things. The traditional theory, driven by Wolsey's biographer, George Cavendish, was that Anne hated Wolsey and sought only to bring him down, a passion that went back to her fury at being thwarted in her marriage to Henry Percy. And there are still plenty of adherents to this view. Others, however, paint a more balanced, conservative picture that while Wolsey was the best hope for gaining the divorce, the Berlin faction was perfectly happy to support him. Both sides point to a slimy exchange of letters between Anne and Wolsey in highly courtly language. Really, they can be read both ways. They can be read as an attempt for two people to get along, make common cause. Or they can be read as the slimy, insincere flattery of people just dreaming of sticking a knife between any ribs that might happen to become unprotected in an unguarded moment. All I'll say is I'm glad I never tried to make a living at the court of Henry VIII. The other thing to note is that poor old Wolsey was operating at an entirely different level to his enemies in terms of faction, and indeed access to the king. His factional allies were functionaries in the privy chamber. Now they might be able to slip in a good word or two, and they might be able to get access and they might be able to report on gossip, but that was it. Wolsey himself was a functionary. He wasn't at the social level of all those minions around the king. And as we've had occasion to mention... He was at the side of the king only very rarely, in fact. His opponents 
and the undecided were constantly at the king's side. On occasion, they actively intervened to make sure Wolsey was sent on diplomatic missions, for example, so that while he was away they could bend the king's ear. A sort of kitchen cabinet began to develop around the king, key figures of his council who he particularly trusts and refers to in the form of Wiltshire, who you'll remember is Thomas Boleyn and his father, and Rochford, and the Dukes of Norfolk and the Duke of Suffolk. Now, Norfolk is a trimmer, desperate to do pretty much anything to rule. He'll bring down anybody who gets in his way if he can. Suffolk was Henry's closest friend and as such keen to see his wishes succeed, but both will struggle to come all the way with Henry as the divorce develops. It is a soup, ladies and gentlemen, a soup, a vicious soup with piranhas floating around in it and every so often the soup bites. So more and more, therefore, basically and fundamentally, Wolsey's future relied entirely on the success of the king's great matter, the divorce. Only the resolution of that would keep the Berlins on his side and would keep the king, the fount of all, keep the king happy. Wolsey's career hung by a thread. And next time, we will hear about how Wolsey does in that struggle. This week... If you're a Shedcast member, you get a glittering, no-expenses-spared episode on Henry's great and implacable adversary, Bishop John Fisher. If you're not, you don't. But even if you're not, thank you so much for listening, everyone, for all the comments and so on. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. 